You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Paul Kalanithi was born on April 1st, 1977. He graduated valedictorian of his high school and he attended Stanford University and there he received a bachelor's and a master's in English literature. And he would later go on to uh, Cambridge University to get a, another master's of philosophy there. And then he did what most English graduates do. He went to medical school at Yale where he graduated cum laude. After med school, he returned back to Stanford to complete his residency training in neurosurgery. Smart guy, very successful. Uh, as he was coming around the bend, finishing his final year, um, job offer after job offer was being extended to him. He really had uh, his, his pick at whatever prestigious job uh, that was perfectly tailored to uh, his interests. Everything he had worked so hard for was now finally before him. And then in May 2013, he was diagnosed with metastatic stage 4 lung cancer, even though he had never smoked a day in his life. Two years later, at the young age of 37, Paul Kalanithi died on March 9th, 2015, leaving behind his wife Lucy and his daughter Elizabeth. Now, before he died, he did put his literature degree to work, and he wrote an autobiography called When Breath Becomes Air. It was published shortly after his death, and it spent many weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. You maybe have heard of it, maybe you've read it. Listen to what he says near the end of the book about how his, uh, his impending death changed what was truly important to him. He begins, he says, medical training is relentlessly future-oriented. All about delayed gratification. You're always thinking about what you'll be doing five years down the line. In other words, Kalanithi is saying, my whole life I've lived racking up one achievement after another, working hard to get to this place. Always climbing the ladder to get to the next thing. And then listen to what he says next. Most ambitions are either achieved or abandoned, but either way they belong in the past. The future, instead of the ladder towards the goals of life, flattens out into a perpetual present. This is him thinking about death. Money, status, all the vanities the preacher of Ecclesiastes described hold so little interest. A chasing after the wind indeed. Did you hear what the good surgeon is saying? In the face of inevitable death, his achievements, money, status, career, all the vanities that the preacher in Ecclesiastes will describe, he says, were ultimately unfulfilling and meaningless. His terminal diagnosis, having to face his own mortality, allowed him to see what was truly meaningful. He began to, uh, with, with knowing that he had a little bit of time left, he stopped sacrificing the present 
on the altar of the future. Or to borrow language from Ecclesiastes, he stopped chasing after the wind. In his book, Remember Death, Matthew McCullough writes, Kalanithi's story has a gripping power because it's so tragic and unexpected. It captivates in least in, at least in part because it seems exceptional to us. You see what he's saying? When we, when we find things that are exceptional, it kind of gets our attention. But Kalanithi echoes the warning of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing exceptional about the substance of his story. You know why? Because everyone's diagnosis is terminal. You may not receive the the news of stage four metastatic lung cancer, but every one of us is trending towards death. Everyone has a terminal diagnosis facing them. He goes on and says, that fact, acknowledged or not, has a devastating effect on on the meaning of what matters to us. You can try to dodge the weight of futility by assuming fulfillment will come when you reach your goals. You can convince yourself that you're dissatisfied only because you haven't finished climbing the ladder. You can believe the key to happiness is what you haven't yet reached. Tomorrow can seem like your greatest friend. Tomorrow holds your highest hopes. But in fact, if we limit our view to life under the sun, tomorrow is not your friend. It's your great enemy because tomorrow is when you die. This morning we begin a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes called The Search for Meaning. Now it is a unique book in the Bible. You probably, if you've read it, you've thought that. This this feels different. It doesn't draw on the great redemptive themes uh, of Exodus. There's no mention of the founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're not even mentioned here. There's no real connection to the history of Israel In many ways, the book of Ecclesiastes reads more like an op-ed piece in the New York Times or the Atlantic. You'll find a mix of skepticism and faith. There's no clear divide between the secular and the sacred. Ecclesiastes will ask more questions and give fewer answers. There's no false religious piety. He just gets honest about what it means to be a human living east of Eden. In other words, Ecclesiastes sounds more like the French deconstructionist than inspired Holy Scripture. There are times when Ecclesiastes sounds more like Ernest Hemingway, the famous author who once said, Life is just a dirty trick, a short trip from nothingness to nothingness. There's no remedy for anything in life. Man's destiny in the universe is like a colony of ants living on the end of a burning log. Or like H.G. Wells who wrote, The present common life of men, at once dull and disorderly, competitive, uncreative, cruelly stupid and stupidly cruel, unless it is to be regarded merely as a necessary phase in the development of a nobler existence, is a thing not worth having. That it doesn't matter who drops dead or how soon we drop dead out of such a world. Unless there is a more abundant life before mankind, the scheme of space and time is a bad joke beyond our understanding, a flare of vulgarity, an empty laugh braying across the universe. If you don't believe me, here's a snippet of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. All is vanity, a striving after the wind. Chapter 3, it doesn't get better. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And better than both the living and the dead is those who have not yet been and have not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. He's saying the best is those who've never been born because they don't have to suffer through this. Zach Wine writes, we feel our lament in his pain. We see our tantrums in his frustrations. We touch our longings as he cries out with his. The preacher gives language to our ache, poetry for our dreams, and exclamation for our speech. He resists anything trite, pretentious, sentimental, or dishonest. Ecclesiastes is a search for meaning in the meaningless. Something lasting in the transient. Something concrete in the elusive. Something profitable in the futile. As you read through this book, as we study it together, you're going to find that the writer is not concerned with questions after life. He's not concerned with, is there life after death? And that's certainly an important question. Thankfully, there are other books in the Bible that take up that, that question and provide a clear and compelling answer. But the question Solomon is concerned with is this. Is there life before death? Is there anything that we could truly call life now? He's concerned with life under the sun, not life beyond the sun. Is there such thing as life that can truly be called life? And if so, where is it? Where is it? Now this morning we're going to look at the introduction to the book. It's, it's found in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and it's going to break into three parts. If you're taking notes today, here's our first heading. In verses 1 to 2, the preacher, as he's called, will proclaim an unsettling truth. As we begin right from the start, we're told that all of life has been infected by vanity and futility. So we'll spend some time unpacking what that means and why understanding it is a key uh, to a life of wisdom. The second movement in verse 3 will be this. The preacher will pose a rhetorical question to consider. So if you're familiar with the Socratic method which is a way of teaching where you ask a lot of questions and the students are meant to uh, wrestle with those questions and, and try to come through the learning process on their own. That's a lot of what Ecclesiastes is. Questions are asked and we are meant to pause and to consider them. And so these questions as we go throughout the book are inviting us into the preacher's struggle and search for the meaning of life. And then in verses 4 to 11, the preacher will paint a stark picture of life under the sun. Like Mark Twain famously said, don't just tell me but show me. That's what the preacher's doing here. He paints a vivid picture that life under the sun is brutal. Our days are long. The years are short. We will die and soon we will be forgotten. Now with that cheery and delightful introduction, let's start together in verse 1. As the preacher proclaims an unsettling truth. Here again the words of the Lord. 
Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now verse 1 introduces us to the writer of Ecclesiastes. And the ESV translates a Hebrew word, kohelet, as preacher. So when you see the word preacher, it's the Hebrew word kohelet. Now it's a, a, a derivative of the Hebrew word that means gathering or assembly of the people of God for worship. And it means the leader, the speaker, the teacher or preacher of the gathering. So the ESV has got a good translation here. So you've got a Hebrew word that means ch- like church and then the one who gets up and talks, the preacher, right? So that's, that's, that's what's happening here. The writer is called the preacher. In fact, the word Ecclesiastes, maybe you were wondering, what does that word even mean? Ecclesiastes is just the, the transliteration into English of the Greek translation of the word Kohelet. See, in Hebrew, the, the, the chapter, or the, the title of this book is The Words of the Preacher. That's the name of, of this. And so if you take that word Kohelet and translate it into Greek, it's Ecclesiastes. And then we just transliterated that so because that, you probably don't know Greek. That's what the word Ecclesiastes is. So Kohelet equals Ecclesiastes equals preacher. So who is this preacher? Well, traditionally, people have identified the preacher as Solomon. And I think for good reason, because we're told that the preacher is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We know that Solomon was David's son, and he served as king in Jerusalem. And if you want to, uh, you can go read about his life, and I encourage you to do so. You can see his birth in 1 Samuel chapter 12. The details of his life come to us in 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11. And you can also read 1 and 2 Chronicles. That's where you're going to get the biography and the story of Solomon's life. And as a young king... The Lord came to Solomon and said, basically, I'll give you anything that you ask for, like a blank check to my power. What do you want? And Solomon, instead of asking for wealth and power and long life, instead, he asked for wisdom. And because he asked for wisdom, not only did the Lord give him wisdom and abundance, but he gave him all those other things too. Power, wealth, notoriety. He was famous He had uh, wealth untold. It's no wonder that Solomon the Wise is one of the primary authors in our wisdom literature of the Bible. You've got five wisdom books in the Bible. You've got Psalms, you've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, Song of Songs, and and, uh, uh, in the book of Job. He's one of the primary authors of uh, the book of Proverbs and the author of Song of Songs, First Kings 4 tells us that in his lifetime, Solomon wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, over 1,000 Psalms. His wealth and power were famous the world over. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you get a sense that um, only a man of immense means would have been able to do the kind of life experiments to try the things that he tried to find meaning in them. Now, be, now, to be fair, there's plenty of other scholars and pastors and Bible readers who would deny that Solomon was the, the writer of Ecclesiastes. And it's true, the book never comes out and says it as a matter of fact. At the end of the day, Solomon makes a whole lot of sense um, as, uh, as the author. And so if you're reading, if you're interested in, uh, in, in those kinds of, uh, uh, of debates on who wrote different books of the Bible, be my guest. The commentary has spent a lot of time Uh, talking about it. But what's most important is what the preacher has to tell us. So let's look at verse 2. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, if you were to look at this in Hebrew, this, this verse, verse 2, is eight words. Five of those is the Hebrew word hevel. Let's practice some Hebrew together. Hevel. Can you say that? Hevel. All right. Hevel, hevel, says the preacher. Hevel, hevelim. All is hevel. So what is hevel? Well, the ESV translates hevel with the word vanity. Now, the problem with that translation is just how we typically think of vanity. If you were to go to a dictionary, you know how dictionaries have several different uh, uh, entries? If you look at the first one, which is usually the, the primary one, vanity will come up as uh, pride or narcissism, someone who thinks too highly of themselves and their appearance. You've got to go down further to get to the, the meaning of this word. The word hevel in Hebrew literally means vapor or breath or smoke. Now, what do all of these words have in common? Well, they're transient. They come and they go. They, they have a, the appearance of solidity, but in actuality, they're, they're, they're ephemeral. And what the preacher is doing is giving us a word picture. That's what good communicators do. They, they put a picture in your mind so that you can get this uh, hard-to-grasp kind of con, uh, concept. So he's saying everything is hevel. Everything is, is like a vapor. It's like smoke. He's using the word metaphorically. To make a poignant statement about life. That life is categorically marked by hevel. So here's some different translations that try to get at this. You, it, depending on different translations, you'll see this word hevel translated as vanity, meaninglessness, useless, transient, futility, temporal, brevity, senseless, absurd, enigmatic. And I think all of those are touching different aspects of Hevel. In one sense, we need all of those words to really understand it. You're going to find this word used 38 times in the book. So it's a major theme, a major player in what the preacher is trying to tell us. So you can't escape this word in Ecclesiastes because you can't escape it in reality either. The preacher is saying you can't stop the spread of Hevel. Remember when COVID-19 first hit, all the posters stopped the spread? Remember that? You think COVID-19 is bad. The preacher is saying Hevel is the pandemic of pandemics. You can't quarantine it. There's no vaccine for it. There's no escaping infection. Every single one of us is infected with Hevel and everything is infected by it as well. In other words, Hevel happens. We need to make a t-shirt that just says, hey man, hevel happens. See, this is the preacher's unsettling truth. That everything in a post-Edenic world is just marked and infected by hevel. This is a common biblical theme. Psalm 39, 5 and 6. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. That's our word hevel. Surely man goes about as a shadow. You see the transience, the ephemerality of it. Surely for nothing, hevel, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Psalm 39, 11, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath, hevel. Psalm 144, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? 
or the son of man that you think of him. Man is like a breath, pebble. His days are like a passing shadow. Now he's going to continue to unpack what it means that everything in life is marked by Hebel throughout the rest of the book. Remember I said it's going to show up 38 times. But for now, here's a couple of ways to think about it. First, life is brief. Life is brief. Life is just the merest of breaths. You are here today and you're gone tomorrow. Think about this. What happens when you blow out a candle? Well, immediately, what do you see? You see this puff of smoke, right? You can see it. It's there. You can smell it. It's real. It it really is there. And then what happens? Very quickly, it's gone. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's here and gone without a permanent, lasting impact. That's what Hebel is. And that's our life under the sun. It's brief. Second, not only is our life brief, it's also elusive. Hevel means elusive. Here's what I mean. Think about that same image of smoke. Have you ever tried to grab it? Like, I want to I hold some of that smoke. Guess what? You can't do it. It's futile. See, the very movement of your hand towards the smoke, what does it do? It creates a chain reaction of physics that keeps you from being able to grab it. Like just that little bit of movement, that little bit of, of, of wind that your hand creates moves the smoke. You can't grasp it. You can't hold it. It's marked by transience and fleetingness. Have you ever felt the times where you're sitting there and you're going, right now is really good. Things are going really well. What happens? It's gone. Beauty, goodness, it's fleeting. The moment it seems you start to enjoy it, it goes away. Life is often unpredictable and unstable. Have you ever noticed that we are just one email, one phone call, one trending, breaking news story from receiving news that radically reshapes our lives? That's Hevel. We are not in as as much control of our lives as we think we are. Control is a myth. It's a lie. You are not in control. Why? Because of Hevel. Hevel simply won't allow it. Now again, the preacher is going to continue to develop this theme throughout the book about how life is brief and elusive. But right now, we need to let that truth unsettle us. I know a lot of my job as a preacher is to to, to build, but today's work is about demolition. You know, before you do a remodeling project, what do you got to do first? You got to demo. You got to take stuff out. You got to break things. You got to remove things. And when you open up things, you find things you didn't know were there before. And it's Hevel. You have to demolish before you can break down. That's what he's trying to do. These truths are meant to unsettle us. They are inconvenient. No one wants to think of their life like building sandcastles on the beach. You ever built a great sandcastle? Maybe you, you, you took a vacation and you went to the beach that morning and you built this elaborate, amazing sandcastle. It worked all the way into the evening. And you said, man, the sun is setting. We're going to get back to the beach house. We'll come back tomorrow and, and like look at what we've built. What happens? You get back there. The tides have come in and washed away any memory or semblance of your sandcastle. You can't even tell where it was anymore. Here for a moment and completely eradicated by the next tide. Yesterday's sandcastles do not leave a mark on the beach. And Ecclesiastes says, that's your life. 
Life is marked by Hebel. And the preacher wants that truth to unsettle us. That's his point. He wants it to demolish all of our pretense. He wants it to break us down so that we can be built up better by the end of the book. These words are meant to be provocative. Now, by provocative, I don't mean like rated R. I don't mean swears. I meant they're meant to provoke you. They're meant to stir in you a provocation so that you do some internal soul level thinking. That's what these words are meant to do. They're meant to prod you. Later in the end of the book, the writer will say, my words, I've hoped my words are like the goads. What, what shepherds would do to poke and prod animals, livestock, to keep them in line, to, to help direct them where they're going. He's saying, I hope these words prod you. I hope they wake you up. They're meant to be a smelling salt to wake you up. You know those rumble strips on the side of the road? Many a times they have saved my life as I've nodded off and then felt the, the arresting nature of my car shaking and the, the loudness of the strips. That's what these words are meant to do. We so easily lose focus, nod off, and just get into the routine and the root of living. And these words are meant to be rumble strips that wake us up. They're saying, wake up. Pay attention. You don't want to come to these truths at the very end of your life. That would be a waste. Take them to heart now. Verses 1 to 2, the, pe the preacher is giving us some unsettling truth. Now let's look at verse 3 as he poses a rhetorical question to consider. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you thought verse 2 was bad, verse 3 does not get any better. He is relentless. No sooner than we receive an unsettling truth, he goes into his first round of rhetorical questions. Now, by the way, just a, a quick word of advice as we work through this book together. We have provided ES, ESV scripture journals. They're in the back. I would encourage you to pick up one of them. And I would encourage you to not only take notes while you're here, but throughout the week, read through the passage. One of the best things you can do before showing up here on a Sunday is having read the passage. In the weekly sync, we even tell you what we're going to be preaching that week. Read the passage, take notes, wrestle with the text. Ecclesiastes is 12 chapters. You can read it in one sitting in about 30 minutes. I highly recommend you do that so that you get a feel for the book as a whole. But I also recommend reading it slowly. Stop when you get to a question. Ecclesiastes, there will be 32 rhetorical questions throughout the book. 32 questions. Chew on them. Consider them. You, you, it, it's wrong if you just move right past them. That's not how this book is meant to be read. When you get to a question, you're supposed to stop reading and think about it. That said... Here's our first question. What do we gain by all the toil at which we toil under the sun? Now to understand this question, we've got to unpack two things. First, what does the preacher mean by the word gain? It's going to show up nine times throughout the book. And it's a word borrowed from the business world. It means profit. What's left over? You know, you, you have your expenses and then you have the money coming in. It's what's left over. It's your surplus, the, 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 the net profit. That's what that word means. 
Second, we need to understand the phrase under the sun. This phrase will show up 29 times. So it's important. That's at least like two or three times every chapter under the sun, life under the sun. It refers to life from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death and everything in between. Now that scope is really important. If you, if you don't understand the scope of it, you're going to misapply things that he's saying. What he's talking about is not life after death, not life beyond the sun. His whole point is to go What do we do with life here and the here and the right now? The life you're living right now, that's what the preacher is concerned about. It's everything you observe in your life. So he's going to talk about material things and emotional things and relational things, business things, neighborhood things, home things, vacation things, school things. He literally means everything, all of life under the sun. And then he says, so what does a man? Really gain when all is said and done, from all the toil, all the work, is there a profit? Is there a surplus? Is there something to be gained? And the implied answer to this rhetorical question is nothing. No gain. No surplus. Nada. Niente. Nothing. From a life full of labor and toil under the sun, the writer is saying people gain absolutely nothing. This is one of those places in the book where the preacher sounds a lot like Jesus, who will be a great, great, great descendant of Solomon. Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is here. You remember that question in Mark's gospel where Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus takes the preacher's question and he he does put it in perspective of the eternal. Now the preacher hasn't gone there yet. He will. And that's so incredibly important because what we're going to find chapter after chapter, week after week as we study, is that the preacher is going to relentlessly build his case that ultimately there is nothing under the sun that will give you lasting significance, meaning, and fulfillment. Now listen, it's not that he's saying everything on on earth is bad. And it's not that they don't have any meaning or significance. Even that phrase, everything is meaningless. It it doesn't really mean that everything, because that would mean even the thing that he's saying. He's trying to make a point. It's that we have a wicked bad habit of looking at life under the sun, at looking at the things of the earth and thinking that those will satisfy the eternal longings of our soul. And he's going to say, nothing here will. It all is marked by Hevel. And the preacher's point in the coming chapters is that if we would stop misusing the things of the earth, we can actually begin to enjoy them for the gift that they are. Zach S. Wine writes this, Looking under the sun for gain by our toil is like trying to buy medicine in a shoe store. The shoe store really matters, but no medicine is found there. So it is in the earth. When we move or stay Spend or save, nothing and no one can make our lives pay off or yield the kind of return we hope. For all its beauty and dignity, and there's tons of it, the earth simply does not possess this ability. And because there will be some who refuse to believe this, who refuse to believe that there's nothing to be gained by it, by our life under the sun, the preacher goes on in verses 4 to 11 to paint a stark 
picture of life under the sun to prove his point. So verse 3 is saying, what does man gain by all of his toil? The implied answer is nothing. Verses 4 to 11 is like, now let me prove my point. Verse 4 goes like this. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now here in verse 4, the preacher paints a picture to show the brevity and impermanence of life as we know it. Think about it. Generations come, generation goes, but the earth remains. What's he saying? He's saying the earth was here long before you, and it will be here long after. The earth has said hello and goodbye to generation to generation, and you know what? It's never shed a tear. It just keeps on going. David Gibson writes, I leave only one thing behind, meaning when he dies, and that's the earth I used to live on, remaining right where it was when I first arrived. Now it only spins without me. My life will come and go. And if you're thinking, well, what if I leave a legacy of children behind? Well, listen to what he says. If I leave children in the world to carry on my legacy, they themselves are simply part of the generations who also will come and go. And they will leave, and all they will leave behind is the universe carrying on as before. Friends, we have not altered the cosmic merry-go-round. Nothing we do changes the fact that we labor and toil and then die and the earth just stays there. Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where streams flow. And there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. These future images, as he goes on in verses 5 to 8, also show the permanence of the earth. The sun rises and sets, keeps on going and going. The sun does not care that you have left the earth. The wind blows and moves and goes round and round. It never stops. You come and go, the wind just keeps calm and blowing on. The streams, they come and they flow. They empty into the sea in this whole cycle of water of evaporation and rain and flowing and going and going. Niagara Falls keeps on rushing. The Atlantic Ocean doesn't even notice you're gone. Not only do these images convey our brevity compared to its permanence, they also convey a repetitiveness to the world. That's the point in verse 8. The activities of the sun and the wind and the water... They follow the activities of speaking, seeing, and hearing. Again, hear David Gibson. The sun chases its tail. The wind goes to the south and comes back around to the north. Streams flow into the sea and the water evaporates. And then the streams flow into the sea again and it is never full. So is the world and so it will be and so is humankind and so we will always be. People are like the insatiable sea. Just as water pours into the ocean once again and again without ever filling it, so the things of this world pour into human beings via our eyes and our ears and back out through our mouths, and yet they never reach a point of complete satisfaction. Just like the sea is never filled, friends, we are never filled. We are never fulfilled. We are never satisfied. And that's the point. Constant motion without fulfillment. Lasting achievement is elusive. 
And we find, you ever found just life to be repetitive? It's like the instructions on the shampoo bottle. Wash, rinse, repeat. Monday feels like Tuesday, feels like Wednesday, right? You punch in, you punch out, punch in, punch out. I can't sometimes tell the difference between one week to the next. That just repetitiveness, constant motion, yet it seems like nothing is ever happening. If you have ever felt that in your soul, Ecclesiastes is speaking to it right now. That's the hevel of verse 2. That's the toil without gain in verse 3. And verse 8 tells us that there are going to be times when you feel all of those things in your soul. But guess what? You won't even have the words to utter it. It'll be this nagging sense that something is not right in the world. And it's just there. And you're like, things are going great. But I can't, I can't figure out why I don't have satisfaction. Why am I not filled? Life is weary. It's burdensome. It's hard. We're coming face to face with the stark reality that our pursuits in life will never ultimately satisfy us. We will just feel the burden. We will just be exhausted by the weariness. And there will be times when you can't even put words on it. And ultimately, nothing we do will have lasting impact beyond the scope of our days. Look what he says in verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the age before us. In our longing for something novel, something to break that repetitive cycle, preacher says that too is futile because there is nothing new under the sun. Now he's not denying that there won't be inventions and innovations. What it does mean is that for all of our ingenuity, there will be nothing new that makes our problems go away. You might think you have nothing in common with people of antiquity because, you know, we've got iPhones and cars and social media and, and all, the, all the rest. But you have more in common with the very first humans who walked on the face of the earth than you realize. One solution, one technology just brings about a different set of problems. No uh, new solutions are really just old solutions packaged differently. The more things change, the more we find that they actually just stay the same. The preacher's point isn't that progress is never made or that there's never relief from suffering. It's just that nothing breaks the hevel. Nothing removes the curse. Nothing ultimately satisfies us. And then here comes the final blow, verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The preacher says, hey, give it enough time and there will be no lasting memory of you whatsoever. Did you realize that of the billions and billions of people who have ever lived and walked the face of the planet, the vast majority of them, we don't even know their names. We don't know anything about the details of their life at all. Our history books are filled with just the merest of percentages of people who've ever walked the planet. Most people are completely and utterly forgotten. 
our memory just only goes so far back. Let's do an exercise. In your mind, you don't have to say this out loud. In your mind, state your parents' names. Okay? You got, you got two parents, right? State their names. Okay. Now, state your grandparents' names. Okay? There should be four of them. Okay? State their names. You got them? Ho- I hope we're all there at least. Okay? Now, state your great-grandparents' names. Both sets. You don't have to admit it, but some of you dropped out. Some of you are still there. Okay. Now go great-grandparents. Great-great-grandparents. Most of the room is now dead in the water. There's that one person who's like, I study Ancestry.com. I have a full family tree. I know it. I've memorized it. Okay. You're the exception. But even that only goes so far back. My father was obsessed with my family's genealogy, tracing it back. He got it. I mean... He got it back to the 1600s and like made this huge binder that I've never really looked at. All right. But even that, it only goes so far. He was like, the records have run out. I can't go any further back. And it's not just them. We're thinking, oh man, we've forgotten all them. Guess what? That's you too. Give it enough time, you will be forgotten. I love this from David Helm. He says, now this should just cheer your soul. You live between forgotten and will be forgotten. That your life right now, the dash between your birth and your death, you live between forgotten and will be forgotten. That's what verse 11 is saying. At the end of the day, for all our toil, our lives will be brief. You will punch in and punch out day after day. And one day you'll punch out for the last time. And your days will be marked by hardship. Pain, loss, you'll experience goodness, yes, but it also fades. Our lives will ultimately be, you ready for this? Unoriginal, unimpressive, unfulfilled, and ultimately unremembered. Time will eventually erase you, all that you've done, and everything we care about. Now, the Christian in the room is going, well, now hold on a minute. Isn't this just a cynical view of life apart from Christ? That is one way to read this book. That the preacher doesn't really believe all this. And he's, he's showing what the atheist or skeptical or cynicist life is like. And I don't think that's the right way to read this book. I think the preacher is saying, even the believer in God, in terms of life under the sun, this is true. And I find so much comfort in it because a lot of what he writes in this book, I have felt in my soul, and I think you do too. I think you have felt the weight of the questions he's asking and thought, so what is it then? If What is life all about? See, what he's describing is not just what happens to unbelievers. This is not just what happens to non-believers. This is the universal problem of life under the sun. Remember, he's not focused on life beyond the sun. He will get there. That's not his primary thing. He's saying, what about life here and now? There is lasting permanence to be found. In Christ, you will be remembered throughout the ages. Christ will remember you. I'm just saying the earth will not. The preacher's scope is to talk about life under the sun And how to live wisely in this life, knowing that our death is inevitable, that our lives are limited. To live with the kind of clarity 
an in the present moment that Paul uh, Kalanathi had. When he realized his death was coming. Just the way that it started to immediately separate the meaningful from the meaningless. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. If you can live with your future death in mind today. And kind of live backwards from there. It will make sense of life under the sun. That's where he's getting to. I've already overstepped my bounds. But I, I, I felt like I had to give you some good news, some trajectory of where you're, we're headed. When you come to grips with your impending death and the limited scope of life, Ecclesiastes says you'll begin to enjoy it for what it is, the gift of life for what it is. He is building a case to say, trying to find gain under the sun is like chasing after the wind. So give up the chase and learn to find joy in the simple and the right now. I love the way Stephen Crane, an American poet, captures our vain attempt at chasing the horizon. Short poem, he says this. I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It is futile, I said. You can never. You lie, he cried and ran on. Just like a man trying to reach the horizon. You get why that's futile, right? It's always before you. You can, by very definition, you cannot get the horizon. It's like chasing after the wind. As we come to the end of the preacher's introduction, he wants us to know. He wants us to wrestle with, will we give up that chase? Will we give up that fool's errand of chasing after the sun? Are we willing to listen to the preacher's sermon to find a better way? Friends, this is life under the sun. It's marked by hevel. Life is short. Meaning is often elusive. You will find life to be repetitive, monotonous, and weary. And when you look back on your toil, nothing is truly gained for all the effort we put in it. And if we're honest this morning, nothing I've said today is revolutionary to you. You have felt it, sensed it, experienced it in the course of your life. You know it's true. And you sense it deep in your souls. The question is not, is it revolutionary? The question is, what will you do with it? Our task is to come to grips with it. See, we are really good at denying truth. We are really good at uh, diverting ourselves away by entertaining ourselves, amusing ourselves, instead of focusing on what is truly important. Now, this book is going to employ an inductive method, which means he's going to build and build and build his case from one example to another. And then at the very end, he's going to draw a conclusion and bring it all together. So in that sense, a total and complete answer is going to take a while. So you're going to have to hang with us for the next 13 weeks. That doesn't mean there won't be hope along the way or anything that we can't do until then. So today, what I want you to do is to write down some questions for application. There's going to be some other concrete application, but in the introduction, the preacher wants us to sit under the weight of questions that don't have easy answers. My hope is that you'd write these down, that you would consider them today, but also throughout the week. See, it was Socrates who said the unexamined life is not worth living, and the preacher would agree. So here's our first question. Since life is brief, what do you want to get out of it? Life is brief. What do you want to get out of it? If you were to look back, if you could just 
you know, in your mind, transport yourself to the end of a good life if God gives it to you, what will you look back on and go, that was worth my time. That was worth my effort. That's what I wanted to get out of this life. What will ultimately have been worth your time and effort? Second, where do you find that you are toiling for gain that will ultimately never come and never satisfy? Notice I didn't say, do you toil for gain that will never come? We all do. It's hardwired into us. So the question is, where are you toiling for gain that will never come and never satisfy? And third, because we're prone to deny the reality of our death and the futility of our soil, of our, of our toil, where are you, uh, where are you, what are you doing in your life to deny that truth? How is it, in what ways are you living in denial of that? So is it entertainment? Instead of uh, creating space in your life for self-reflection, you just fill it with entertainment. Is it social media? Is it sports? Is it food and drink? I mean, it can be anything that you use to distract yourself from the truth, to deny those truths. We all do it in different ways, and it's important to identify the ways that we deny these hard truths. Listen, I know this first sermon seems really bleak. I know these truths hit hard, but that's the point. One of the jobs of the preacher is to just preach the passage and just do a good job of explaining what it's trying to do. That's chapter one. These first 11 verses are meant to be one blow after another. Let's be willing to confront these hard truths so that in the coming days we can see the life that Solomon is leading us to and to receive the abundant life that Christ will provide. Let's pray.